Welcome into another edition of Music Fanimal here on Fanimal Radio. I'm Tony Lombardi, and my special guest this week is the author of what's been described as fat blues music. Welcome in, Kelly Bell. Kelly, good to see you, buddy. Thanks for having me, man. My pleasure. So I got to read a couple of things I thought were really interesting on your website. It says, this is by Review Magazine, describes the Kelly Bell Band as among the most genre-expanding acts on today's blues scene. Who else can combine elements of hip-hop, funk, and blues electrified here? Originally formed as a backup band for rock and roll pioneer Bo Diddley, Kelly Bell Band has been touring the world ever since entertaining fans in Japan, Spain, Italy, Greece, Cuba, Germany, and more. Also added that imagine, this is a description of the Kelly Bell Band. Oh, um, I can do that part for you. Okay. Imagine, if you could imagine, Muddy Waters wearing a Bob Marley t-shirt riding on Black Sabbath's tour bus on the way to a Parliament Funkadelic concert listening to a James Brown A-track tape humming a Run DMC song with a Nighthawks ball cap on all in the glory of Bo Diddley with just a hint of B.B. King that would be merely close to what we do but only close. <laughs> he did that far better than I could have. <laughs> nice job, bro. So, so talk about your musical influence. Obviously all those are influences but, but to get this into a band and I, I gotta tell you if you haven't seen the Kelly Bell Band folks talk about energy <laughs> Off the hook energy. So talk about how you got your band together, guys that had a common vision, and put this melting pot all together in a way that works. Well, it's it started because I um, I was actually a bouncer at a small club called the Eight by Ten in Baltimore, okay. in Federal Hill, yeah. and uh, this was way back in the day. And I was in studying for my masters and 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 working real hard at that. And I went to the club owner, and like all club owners. Giles Cook at that time, Abigail owns it now, but um, said he said to me, I, I don't have a gig for your band. I was in a band called Fat Tuesday. I was a background singer. Um, I would step out and maybe sing two or three songs, mostly covers, in a three-set night. Okay. But my role was pretty much background, congas, supporting the lead singer. So I, I said, uh, man, I'm looking for a gig for my band. He said, man, I don't have a gig for your band. He said, but I do have a gig if you want to back up Bo Diddley. I'm like, don't be crazy. Of course I, you know, we'll want to back up Bo Diddley. At that time, Bo wasn't traveling with his own band. So Bo would show up with a cigar box guitar in one hand and a bag of clothes in the other. And Bo would book a show in like Virginia or DC and then one in Baltimore. They'd pay him five grand a night. DC would be responsible for his lodging. Baltimore would be responsible for his travel. And both clubs would be responsible for finding him a support band. So the whole gimmick is you go out, you do a whole set, we bring Bo out, he does a set, they clear the house, and then you do it all over again. Bo would give you two hours. Now you can have it two hours straight or you can break it up. Of course they chose to break it up because when you're dealing with a small club to be able to afford that, you got to kind of do two shows. Right. So you're running everybody in and out. So my very first show was support band for Bo Diddley. So I wanted to be the Baltimore Blues All-Stars because I was in one band, a good friend of mine, Automatic Slim from uh, Automatic Slim and the Ugly Babysitters. Uh, <laughs> best band name ever. <laughs> uh, he was in a band called Reptones at the time. And the rhythm section was in the legendary Persuaders from this area. So uh, I, he said, take the gig, I'll find you musicians. And I said, well, let's be the Baltimore Blues All-Stars. And he said, no, go under your own name. You never know if you want to do this again. Well, Tony, I had no intention of ever doing this again. You know, I mean, I, I, I didn't have enough material to do it then, to do two hours of music at this point. You know, I knew, I knew like 
eight songs that, you know, now all of a sudden I have to fill two different hours of music because a lot of the people that went to the first show walked out the door and walked right back in. And I knew that would happen. So I had to learn this music and 24 years later and 13 albums later and 32 countries later and uh, all this craziness, man, I, it's, it's amazing. Well, what happened that night, despite all the controversy or maybe the the hurdles you had to climb that for the two different shows. Mm -hmm. What happened that you said, you know what, we can make this work? Uh, you want to know the truth? I have to give credit where it's due. And God rest his soul, man, um, Bo Diddley fell in love with us. Fell in love with me as a person. And took me under his wing and uh, allowed me to, to be his backup band on the East Coast for about four years. Anytime he wanted us and he came to the coast and he, we, we'd get a call and, Hey, I got a show. I mean, I need you, and you get, you get your boys together, you know. And it was funny because then the eight by ten would start to get these phone calls and want to know when the next time the Kelly Bell Band was playing. Not Bo Diddley, but when the right. when the Kelly Bell Band was going to be. The Kelly Bell Band didn't exist. There was no Kelly Bell Band. You just threw the name out there because the guy told you to. And imagine how comfortable it was when I'm the bouncer and I might be answering the phone. <laughs> And they asked, what was the name of that band that played with Bo Dilley? The Kelly Bell Band? I mean, it was weird even saying my own name. And, and I, 24 years later, man, I'm still not used to it. I'm still not comfortable. I'm, so, I'm still blown away by all of this. Besides that, what's the craziest experience that you had with you know, traveling around with Bo? Oh, um, Bo was a guy, and being honest, uh, if Bo liked you, he liked you. If he didn't like you, he really didn't like you. He knew you. it. Yeah, yeah, he didn't pull any punches. And I mean, these were guys that were, you know, they're ripped off in the business. And you're also talking about they came up in a different time in my culture. So being a black R&B star, he, Bo was also one of those people who was one of the godfathers of rock and roll. But he was also a blues star, too. He was a rhythm and blues star first, which is where rock and roll came from. Right. So he was part of the guy bridging that gap. And, he told some really serious horror stories about the things that they went through and, and during that time, and then even coming forward, which is why at the end of his career, he had a different kind of vibe. It was like, you, you pay me five grand, and you pay me five grand, and you pay me five grand, and you're going to pay for my lodging, you're going to pay for my flight, you're going to pay for my, you know, I mean. That's just the way it is. And, now, and that's it, period. And you're going to pay me in cash, and you're going to pay me before I go on. And, I mean, he was very, very structured. He's not the only one that kind of, developed that all of those old blues cats man um chuck berry muddy waters all of them you know kind of got that way towards the end with the exception of bb king I, i'm blessed enough to have spent plenty of time with bb king as well and and the king was king was different obviously because he was you know he was mm -hmm. the king uh, and always will be well you sound like you have a fascinating journey how did it start i mean when did you wake up and say Besides that day when you were bouncing, that I, I believe, because before that you learned how to play percussion, you were a yeah. backup singer. Mm -hmm. So when did it start for you that you said, I want to be a music man? The truth, um, I have to give the credit uh, to my father, God rest his soul. And forgive me if I get emotional, because anytime I talk about my father, it's, it's, it's very difficult some days. Um, Navy vet um, during Korea. Um, so when I was a kid, and I grew up in D.C., I grew up on go-go music in D.C. and funk and Chuck Brown and the Soul Searchers and those were my idols, you know, Rare Essence, those guys. Um, but my dad, he was a good, he was a good man, man. He, you know, he, he he would take me around Saturday morning and I had to cut lawns of people who couldn't afford to have their lawns cut. 
and it was just something that he did. You know, my father also was a mason. Um, and that was too. Yeah. So yeah. you know, not something. You know, back in the day, our dads didn't. They, they, people talk about being a mason now. Back then. It was all secret handshakes right. and, you know, meetings in the living room that I wasn't allowed to walk past, you know, things like that. It was a lot of secrecy. Still a lot of secrecy with the organization, but a wonderful organization. Um, but my dad also was a, uh, a guy who worked in an organization called Christmas in April, um, where they would show up to your house one weekend and literally just help someone who can't afford to get their house together and didn't call, by no costs of their own. So they would come in with appliances and painters and all this stuff. and. And, 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 and I'll be honest with you, I've never told anybody this. There was a point where my father and I were on welfare. We were not doing well. Um, and he had us going out doing this charity, charitable stuff and, and uh, you know, having me cutting grass. I was like, shouldn't I be cutting lawns and making money? And despite at needing this? the money, he still did it for the people. He wasn't right. built that way, man. He was, he was an amazing man. So he would make me listen to the Bama Hour, WPFW, public radio. Uh, in DC, and so we drive around. I'm going, Dad. If I have to work for free, and cut people's houses that I don't even know, can you at least let me listen to my music? And he would say, That stuff you like, this is where it all came from. The blues is the root of all popular music. And he would make me listen to this, you know, gut bucket shows that I was like, Oh man, come on, give me something else. But then he took me to see BB King, and it was Clarence Carter. Bobby Blue Bland and B.B. King. Now, we already spoke about the king. He's, he's the king. They call him that for a reason. Clarence Carter had, he had some language in his stuff that a nine-year-old probably definitely didn't understand. Definitely didn't understand. Um, he had a thing, um, well, I'm not going to quote it because we probably couldn't air it if I, if I did. <laughs> but uh, Bobby Blue Bland came out. And Bobby being my music idol now. He wasn't then because I didn't know anything about him. I was nine years old. And I come out. Bobby does his set. And when he's done, and it's the old Warner Theater DC before they renovated it, the lights go up. And every woman in the building is fanning themselves frantically. I mean, 8 to 80, blind, crippled, or crazy. Every single one of them <laughs> was just fanning themselves. And I'm like, Dad. What is this? Like, I didn't know what it meant to be flustered. So I'm like, what, what is this? What? My father was just like, you, you'll understand someday, son. You know, I mean, that's not a You're conversation. Not yeah, we're nine years old. <laughs> that's not the first time you're having that conversation. Right. So uh, I found out that, you know, that they were so affected by what he did. Not, not just his stage presence and his voice and the entertainment factor, but just everything he did, you know? He just changed their mindset and their vibe. And it spoke to me, and I was like, I don't know what he's doing, but I know I want to do that. I want to have that effect on people. I want to bring that kind of joy. And then learning how to be an entertainer over the years and also embracing what my father did in regard to service. It has, it has allowed the Kelly Bell Band to use the, our platform in so many ways. Uh, there's actually a documentary coming out on us uh, later this year that'll be on Netflix. Who's Netflix, right? Mm -hmm. And it's also entitled Know My Name, which is the title of our new record. Right. Uh, and it's, it really does talk about the journey of the last 24 years, but it, talks, it goes back further than that because it talks about my whole life and, um, you know, and my family and how, and the things that we've done. Um, 
fortunately, you know, I work with Navy Entertainment and, you know, traveling the world, entertaining our United States military, all branches. So 24 years, 13 records. Mm -hmm. Talk a little bit about when you first, what was the first record you did, Fat? Fat Blues, Blues Music was right. the very first album. 98? Yeah, 1998. And we, the first thing that we had was a little orange cassette. Uh, they had six songs on it. Uh, uh, I'm fortunate yeah, to... At least you were beyond eight tracks, right? Right, right. Barely, though. <laughs> Barely. <laughs> uh, but, well, so we, we printed a few thousand of those and went right through them. And then CDs got popular. And then I, I was like, look, we can't just duplicate this little live cassette thing that we did. We, we need to put a real CD together. And we found ourselves at Right Way Studios. Um, and cutting this new CD, which ended up Fat Blues Music broke all the records in Baltimore, local records in Baltimore. Um, there used to be a chain of stores, record and tape traders, very this. famously, yeah. in, in Baltimore. And we stayed in their top 20 for 32 weeks, which was insane. I'm like, you know, Jay-Z and Beyonce and... You know, and, and Miley Cyrus, and they didn't. They never stayed in there for. That was in records and tr uh, tape traders. And that listing okay. for, for sales. Okay. So it, it was amazing. And they went through all the the Baltimore and DC area, right? Yeah, okay. yeah, and our CD sold unbelievably. Um, the the very first year it came out, and it, and it just kept going. That first CD just was crazy for people. Um, which is weird for me, you know, because I mean, I felt like we've gotten better and, and the music has grown so much, you know, but people are still, they, people are very, very attached to that first thing, you know, so it, it speaks to them in, in different kinds of ways that, that we've found out over the years. Now, it's interesting you brought that up because I wanted to ask you, I was listening to an interview on Sirius XM Radio mm -hmm. and I think it was Eddie Vedder who was hosting the Beatles channel mm -hmm. and he talked about even correlated to Pearl Jam, he said that you know a lot of times fans want you to stay the same. They want ten all the time in his case, right? Right. And he said a band just doesn't want to do that. They want to progress. He said, think about if the Beatles all they did was meet the Beatles over and over again. Right. You know, <laughs> where would that have gone? Right. So, so in that regard, talk about how your music's progressed from that '98 record up to the one that you're going to release on April 26th of this month. Sure. I mean the. Production value-wise, obviously, it's different because the technology is so different. Like, we used to record everything to tape, and it would take forever when you're like, oh, I messed up that line. Can I do that again? Sure. And you would hear, chick, 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 you know, having to get back to get back to this to this eight-inch tape, you know, or four-inch tape, or whatever they were using at that time. And then ADATs came along and everything else. So the technology has definitely changed now that everyone is using, you know, um, computers now to record directly into. We still, though, take that music, dump it onto tape, and then bring it back into the computer to be able to manipulate it because there's nothing like the warmth of an album. And so we never wanted to lose that feel. So even with our current record and every single one we've done, they all have been dumped to tape to warm up and then put back in, into the computer to be able to manipulate. Um, in regard to the styles of music, there have been you know, several guys in the band over the years and their, I guess their expertise has also been welcomed into my ADD view of music, <laughs> which is, you know, pretty much all over the place. Fat Blues Music really keeps one foot firmly planted, planted into, the, into the blues world, 
because I, I truly am a blues man. Um, it blues saved my life, when, you know. <laughs> and so many times I, I can't even, when I was a kid, contemplating to be or not to be. Mm -hmm. You know, blues reminded me that none of us are alone in our walk through this world. So it always gave you something that was familiar. No matter how you were feeling, you could put on a blues record, I put on a Muddy Waters record, a John Lee Hooker record, and he already wrote a song about it. And then you know, all of a sudden you don't feel alone anymore. Right. And, and, and I needed to bring that and present that to other people and then say, like, look, I, I'm, I am someone that attempted to take his own life as a teenager. And this music literally saved me. Saved me so much that the, through the training of my father and, and, and my work in mental health with kids and difficulties, it, it has changed and scoped it how the music is delivered as well. Is that how you got into the whole mental health aspect of your education? Yeah, most definitely. Um, again, coming from my father and just the thought of service, knowing that service is greater than you. Um, and this is coming from a man who, although I consider myself a very spiritual person, my father was not. Um, my father was not a spiritual man. He was just a good dude. And he just, he wasn't doing it to try to get into heaven. Um, you know, he wasn't doing it because a preacher told him to do it or trained him to do it, even though his grandfather was a preacher. Uh, he just did it because he was a good dude. And it shaped and molded my personality um, and how I tend to, how I attempt to live my life. I have two goals in life. The first one is to greet the sun with the intention to be a better man than I was the day before. And goal number two is never ever forget goal number one. Nice. So with, with, with all of that in mind, um, it has molded and shaped my musical interest because I used to be in a heavy metal band called Border Patrol when I was much, much younger. So if you're hearing me scream uh, uh, Judas Priest covers and accept covers with coming from a 300-pound black guy with dreadlocks, you know, <laughs> like you look at me like, what is that? Is he singing Black Sabbath? Like, I don't understand. That's got to got to tell you is one of the big attractions of your band is that you guys are all over the place because we're insane. <laughs> like, so insane energy is what these guys are all about. We're going to take a short break and we're going to show you Kelly's new record, Long Train. So stay right there. This is Music Fanimal on Fanimal Radio.
the string, girl, let's take a ride. Them laws are chasing block the blue faces, so wild time. Feel like I need an alibi, and I just found mine. I'm the most wanted man in this town, I stole a lot of hearts. But I ain't guilty, cause it was mine from the very start. You would be nice I don't think that this here is love and pain. Make a decision, clock is ticking, you better get on. a little bit about the inspirational drive behind that song. Well, you know, as you know, I mean, fat blues music is a very eclectic approach to music. So, to be able That's to... That's an understatement. <laughs> yeah, probably. <laughs> I mean, we're a blues band with a rock and roll energy. Right. And stage presence, you know. So, that, that video, we wanted to put something out that kind of showed people what our live show was. It's so funny because we're one of those bands that... When you, some people don't get us until they come see us because fat blues music is so diverse and always has been. This isn't, you know, it's a people are more eclectic now. People always go, oh, I love all kinds of music, and you go over the house and they got four CDs, two are still in the wrapper, and three of them are all the same genre, you know. <laughs> but that's not, you know, you come and see one of our shows, you might hear four or five different genres in one set just from us. It's an experience. It is. It truly is. Um, and you get jokes and you get all this other stuff you know there's a real organic piece of the show that you know every show is different we don't use set lists so they're all up here so it depends on what the crowd is doing for what song I call next so and your band's it. tight enough to know where, where to take it so here's a little secret that I never really tell people I probably shouldn't now but I'm going to do it anyway <laughs> so I will look to someone in the band that starts the next song that I want to play mouth it to them or give a hand gesture they already know what to do. Nothing else needs to be said. And it's basically on me reading the crowd. So if we just did a, a nice jump blues tune, one of our jump blues tunes, everybody's having a great time, and they don't look like they need to breathe yet, I'm, we're going to come at you with something else to keep you moving. But if I'm, if it's looking like, okay, you guys might need a break just for a second. Because <laughs> you just, you can't, you know, you, just, you can't do that to them. You, you got to tell a story. You know, you got to kind of tell a story when you have a set. And our sets are, you know, often three to four hours long. One set. Wow. Yeah. So, I mean, it's that's another thing that has kind of evolved over the years with the band. So talk about Long Train. So Long Train is, is basically, we want to do a video presentation, a video at least, to give people an idea of what the band was like live. So when you see the video, as you've seen the video, um... You can see that we're fun, we're goofballs, it's high energy, but it's also extraordinary musicianship. 
I, I've surrounded myself with guys, with players. You know, my, my entire career, I've always been surrounded with guys, with players. Um, so, Long Train has that, you know, that a little bit of a rock and roll edge and definitely the bluesy edge. And I guess if you could imagine um, Ozzy Osbourne leaving Black Sabbath in his early days and just being in a blues band, which honestly Black Sabbath wasn't that far away from it. Uh, some of their original recordings when they were doing like blue suede shoes and stuff like that uh, was very, very bluesy. Geezer Butler. Yeah. Geezer and Tony. I mean, Tony Iommi is a very underrated guitar player. Um, so we kind of want to have that Sabbath vibe with Long Train, but not losing who we are, too. So it, it, it just gives you a little taste, I think. Speaking of who we are, talk about some of your, your bandmates. You know, how long you guys have been together and and how you got together and all those good things. It's been 24 years. Right now we have uh, Ryan Fowler playing guitar, uh, Eric Robinson playing guitar, Frankie Hernandez playing bass, um, John Robert Buell, who plays drums, Rasan Wordslave Eldridge, who is a trumpet player, a singer, a rapper, he's a poet, he plays Wordslave? Yes, he's our, he's, he's our, our do-all dude. And um, one of the guys for, for blues fans and blues aficionados, uh, Dane Paul Russell is our harmonica player. And Dane was the harmonica player for legendary Bobby Parker there, who also appears on one of our records. Bobby and I were friends for many years. And um, he was, again, like Albert Collins and Smokey Wilson and Bobby Bland, those guys that kind of, James Cotton, all those guys that reached back and helped me out. You know, Mark Winter from the Nighthawks, all of these guys that really have helped me out in my career over the years. And um, he traveled in the Bobby Parker band for 15 years. And so Dane is a well-seasoned, very famous blues man. And when Bobby passed away, Dane was kind of, you know, trying to figure out what he was going to do. And so we, had, we were recording um, our last album, which is... Live from Quiet Waters Park. Now, we've got like five albums that are live, all different venues, different setups. The Quiet Waters is a 23-piece big band. So it's like a greatest hits. It's a double CD, but it's a 23-piece band. Nine horns, background singers, extra guitar players. Carl Philippiak made an appearance. Dean Rosenthal made an appearance. I mean, it's it, it was just this amazing thing that we wanted to do that really we toured with for a whole summer. But once we did it at Quiet Waters Park, we did it there a couple times, the beginning of the season, the end of the season, we wanted to record it. Uh, so we had Dane be a part of that. And it just went so well that Ryan Fowler, our guitar player, said, man, you should really ask Dane if he wants to join the band full time and be part of, a, of the close-knit seven band, that you know, the seven of us that travel everywhere. And I presented that to him, not thinking he would say yes. And Dane said, man, I'll, you don't know how long I've been asking. I've been waiting for you to ask me that question. And I was, like, completely blown away. And so now we have Dane Paul Russell, who's been with us for a few years now, too. So It's an interesting journey along the way. When you look back in time, you piece it together. Oh, and I, you don't really know it's part of the journey until you look back in retrospect. And I've known Dane for years. Dane had, had played on our records as a guest several times. He played. Uh, he's the harmonica player on Ain't Like It Used To Be which is our second album, the title track of our second album. And now, the 13th album, he's actually a member of the band recording. 
So, I mean, it, it shows how close-knit, you know, that the, the music community really is, um, even though we have been separated for over a decade. Now, you guys are have won quite a few awards, and you've been named the best blues band in the Mid-Atlantic region for 12 years in a row. Yeah. There's a lot of talent coming out of the Mid-Atlantic area. It's a, and you're, you're top dog for a dozen years. It's pretty impressive. It's mm, scary. Humbling? Yes. Um, more than humbling, man. I, you know, with, with bands like the Nighthawks and Deanna Bogart and the Crawdaddies and Dean Rosenthal, and there's just so many, too many to, to really name. It's amazing that we're even mentioned in that company. To say nothing that won so many times. We we won the Maryland Music Award for Best Blues Band um, year before last. And then last year, we won Best Funk Band, which is indicative of pretty much what fat blues music is. You don't really know where to put it. So that's been, a, it's been an asset for us for a long time because, again, listeners are so eclectic these days. Um, but it's also been difficult for us um, financially and you know, just business-wise, because you don't know what bin. Record stores have never known what bin to put us in. And that's a very popular thing now, to, to be that kind of artist and see different collaborations. But when we started doing it 24 years ago, people, some people just thought of it as a mess. And, like, the blues community, that didn't reject us, but they were kind of hands-off because they didn't understand it. And it took guys like Mark Winter and Deanna Bogart and, and you know, again, my, my, one of my mentors, uh, Albert Collins, to come in and say, no, no, you guys got this wrong. This is real here. I remember the Almighty Centers were a lot like that. Mm-hmm. And who have there they had a lead drummer. drummer. The guy was in the front. Landis Expandis. <laughs> so we have a song on um, our album, Reincarnated, which is uh, Corno Star. And it's actually an Almighty Senator song. And Landis actually uh, was... Uh, we brought him as a guest to come in and sing. That's on the new song. record? No, no, that's on uh, on our album, Reincarnated. Okay. That was like album number five. So we've been pretty tight with the Almighty Sinners for many years. Their horn section appears on probably half our records. Uh, their old bass player, uh, Brett Sharbrook, was actually in the Kelly Bell Band for quite a few years, too. So, again, the that, you know, nature, that closed nature of the music community, which is much smaller than you would imagine. Talk about, you mentioned the financial pressures of being in a band. Talk about that a little bit because, you know, as someone that isn't a musician but certainly an admirer of it all, it seems to me that bands today are making their money with touring. They're not making money on record sales anymore. It used to be the other way around when you would support your new album with the tour. Right. But the tour wasn't how you were making your bread and butter. It was the record sales. Right. Well, I mean, if you really want to talk about it, a very good friend of mine, um, Edwin McCain. And Edwin had written a song called I'll Be. And it's, you know, I mean, I turned on the TV one day and Edwin was singing the national anthem at the Daytona 500. It doesn't get much bigger. Right, right. You know? Uh, but when, I guess it was Napster that came in? Was it Napster? The, the first in? pirating thing? Yeah, the first yeah. pirating thing. That it was LimeWire or something like that. All of those, those streaming things really did affect the record industry. But the record industry also hurt itself because they were charging people so much money. And, you know, it just kept getting more and more ridiculous. And 
record companies charge so much money to the artist to have your own record. So let's say you get in some you have some big record deal and the record company says we will produce your record and reproduce your record. So you don't even you don't say how many units are getting pushed, you don't know what how much a unit is costing, you don't know you don't know anything about the bottom line. They say we're gonna give you this lump sum of money, this is what you're gonna to use to record, and then we're gonna subtract that later from you. And we kind of got on board with the whole game because we've, again, I'm lucky to be friends with a lot of folks who have done very, very well in the entertainment business. So I've gotten to see behind the curtain quite a bit, which is why we started our own record company a long time ago. So we do things a little bit differently. We, we have our own, we have different relationships with different companies. And my my company, uh, Fabulous Records, they produce all the records. We do our own promotion, everything. Um, and it was unheard of 24 years ago. That was definitely, because it was record deal, record deal, record deal, record deal. And the manager that we had back in the day was saying, this is what you got to do to get a record deal. And I'm like, man, I'm a loser, man. I don't care about that. I said, I, let me explain something. You're looking for us to be real hot for the next two years. I'm a blues man. I'm going to do this long after I have to sit down to keep doing it. Okay, so you, longevity means something to me. Plus, I'm also giving back to the music that saved my life. So I I don't care about that. Like, would I like a bigger house? Of course I would. Do I, all, do I always want to see a bunch of hot women right down front screaming every word to every song? Of course I would. But there are also several charities and several organizations that keep their doors open because we do one show a year for them, and they're able to help uh, a lot of different populations, from kids with autism to uh, homeless teenagers and runaways, and we have, you know, to the military, and all of that is important. And when you when you're talking about fat blues music, it's not just entertainment. You heard a lot about giving back and mentioned off the air before about this next song that will feature Homegrown. Tell a little bit about that story because it's a fascinating story. So it's actually, um, we were playing uh, the Trifecta Festival. Uh, it was a big festival in the Maryland State Fairgrounds. It was a terrible storm that day and it was the day that um, Ellicott City, Maryland was, was like an old town type town in Maryland and literally just washed away. Um, it was horrible. It was all over the nation. Yeah, it was. It was it, right. It was an international story. Um, well, we finished our set and we went home. It was one of those days we actually get to go home because you weren't too far from the house and you get to be in your own house after the show. So I come in, I sit down, and I turn on the TV because it's storming. I'm really I turned on the TV to see if I still had TV because it was that big a storm, and wondering whether the satellite was knocked out. And the news comes on, and I see a car floating past. Our keyboard player, Kirk Myers, his wife has a, a shop in Ellicott City. A little curio type thing. And it, I'm watching cars wash down, and the window, the water is coming up past the window in the front of the store. And I'm thinking, oh my God, what is this about? So I call Kirk in New York, and they are actually having dinner in, in a restaurant in New York. They were out there vacationing, had no idea what was going on. And so I tell him, he of course has a horrid look on his face, I'm sure, because his wife is sitting across from him. She has no idea what's going on, but those text messages are getting ready to come in. And I'm like, Kirk, dude, you better say something to her right now. And so he got off the phone, he did. It didn't go well. 
Kirkwood mommy saying that it did not go well. Um, and how could it? It was something that they had put 10, 15 years of their life into. It's, um, it's more than just a story. It's more. It was so much more. And, and not just for her, but for all of those folks in Ellicott City. And we played the Ellicott City Main Street Music Festival every year. We headlined it every year on a certain stage. And now there wasn't going to be any festival because there was no town. And so they were trying to figure out how they could help the town. So they came to us. And we have a song on our first record called Homegrown. And the hook is, Homegrown, so glad to meet you. And they said they would like to use the hook as a comeback, as their comeback theme. And I said, well, if you're going to do it as a comeback theme, then you have to allow us to re-record it and make it make it make sense for your journey. And so there's actually two different versions of Homegrown. There's Homegrown, the original, and then there's a version called Homegrown Stand Up which is different lyrics, has a rap in it, which is things that the original version doesn't have. Mm-hmm. So while we were doing this, the, these guys that um, stereoscope, the guys that who are actually making the documentary about me and about the band and, and our journey as a band, they at first they were just going to do uh, a regular concert video. They just wanted to shoot a concert video. But in hanging backstage and learning more about us and learning about the things that we do in regard to service, they just really felt like this should be a movie and not a concert video. And it should be, someone should be telling the story of the Kelly Bell Band and why it exists um, and, what it, and what it does. And so they decided to kind of document Homegrown Stand Up. So it's kind of a we are the world kind of thing for different artists in the area. So I got on the phone and within one week I was able to Calling guys from Job Works and the Almighty Senators and Fertile Ground and Love the Poets. I brought poets and 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 um, uh, Black Root and I mean Brooks Long. I mean, there's so many great artists. And when you see that video, Homegrown Stand Up, you're going to see all these other people. But the other cool thing that we were able to do is I actually brought people from Ellicott City into the studio to do hand claps and all that kind of thing. So we found ourselves at Meriwether Post Pavilion. Meriwether was so generous to actually donate their space and have the Main Street Music Festival there so that it could still happen. And now, all of a sudden, here we are at Meriwether Post Pavilion, a place that I've stood in the crowd and seen every artist that you could imagine. Now I'm standing up here headlining to thousands and thousands of people. And backstage... There are hundreds of people who have been affected a year a year prior to that flood. Well, what they didn't know, I invited them to the side of, the, of both sides of the stage so that they could come out and clap hands. Same thing that we had done in the video. What they didn't know is that somewhere in the middle of the song, I waved everybody in. And so if you see footage of that, there's literally hundreds of people standing on the stage clapping and crying because they were able to forget about everything. They, you know, they lost everything. You're talking about losing your house, your business, your dream, you know. But for that one moment, we got to be the one thing that brought them all back together in that festival. And it was awesome. And it was the only time, it was the first time we had played that song. We had, we had it together. We the video is really a documentary of 
us putting that together. So you see all these different people who are not in the band and were just lean, you know lending their talents to to this film. And and even in the DVD, it talks about in our um, our documentary that's coming out. It, it it talks about the the struggle we had to kind of recreate it. We had a, a week to recreate a song that I've been singing for twenty years. <laughs> And now oh, it has different. Yeah, now it has different words. <laughs> right. So you know that that was a, a challenge as well. And also, you're talking about standing up in the Meriwether Post Pavilion, a place that holds you know twenty thousand plus people. And now I'm singing a brand new song with new lyrics that I've never sung before in front of people. So it was it, everything Did you about have a cheat it. Cheat? No, 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 no. Not everything about it was a challenge, though. I'm not above a cheat sheet, though. Don't get me wrong. <laughs> But now that one, uh, I want—I needed to commit myself to it because uh, I was asking everyone else, including the folks there, to commit to it. And that—that's another example of the of the service that that the Kelly Bell Band has been able to do. Now I love the Netflix documentaries on bands. I, I could just watch those forever. You're going to love ours. And so I had to ask, how did they approach you, or how did you connect with Netflix, and and when will it be available? Um, that's, my manager is taking, my manager, David Snowden, is taking, taking the ball and all of that stuff. Um, but I know they wanted to delay things because with the record coming out, right now there's so many amazing things happening for this band and for Rima, you know. I, we've done movies and commercials and, and, and TV shows, videos. you know, videos, though, you know, even The Wire used our music and, you know, I mean, it, it's been amazing. And now... This is the first studio record that we've put out in years. And I didn't realize people were waiting for this. And it's crazy. It's like this, the long train, the song is being played on all of these stations around the country. And I don't know how it happened. I don't even have a physical copy of the CD right now myself. And it's all over the United States already. And um, I'm humbled by that. You know, um, I... They pay me to, to do what I would do for free. So, I mean, I get the greatest job in the world, man. So, when you look back at this, what will define success for you with this record? This new record that you haven't been in the studio for, what you say, five years? Yeah, well, it's been, we've been in the studio, but we've been, like, mixing on live records. So, the last exactly. two records was our, our 20th anniversary was um, Coming Home, live from the 8x10, which is, a live record that was just the band, you know. And then we had the Quiet Waters record, which is the 23-piece big band. It was an extravagant thing, you know. Um, something really cool about that particular record, uh, well, I guess it's cool. I, I had an issue with it at first, but Word Slave told me, uh, he's the one that convinced me that you, I needed to put this particular song on. There's a song called Down in the Bottom that uh, is from my very first record that's on that. And... Even the footage, there's some footage from that show in the documentary. And you can hear it even in the recording. In the recording my voice is breaking up. Uh, and I'm still a perfectionist. I don't want people hearing my voice breaking up on the recording. So I wasn't going to put that song on it. Wordslave said, you have to. It's the most genuine thing you've ever done. The backstory is, my father had passed away. And um, the day my father died... Uh, the following day, within 24 hours, we had three shows the next day. And, uh, you know, my band thought, hey man, did, did we cancel anything? I was like, no, that's not, 
who my father was. My father told me he get up and go to work. Um, so we got up and went to work. But I'm also an artist. I'm not just an entertainer. I'm an artist, which means I'm gonna put my joy. I'm gonna put my thoughts. I'm gonna put my pain on stage, and then let you be the judge. And you take what you need from me, or throw away what you want. So I was standing on stage, and I had said that. This song is dedicated to my father. I lost him yesterday. And you're talking about we're at this big festival. It's show number two of three that day. And all of a sudden there's a complete whisper over the crowd. And which is, wasn't what I was trying to do. I, was, I even said in that moment, please allow me to be selfish for a moment and be self-indulgent. And I would like to dedicate this song. The quiet was respect. It was amazing. And I get halfway through the song and I lost it. I, I hadn't cried about it at all. And now these tears are pouring out of my face. My voice is cracking all over the place. I'm looking around. The band is crying because they knew my father was gone. And I'm looking out in the crowd and half the people are crying. And I'm going, what did I just do this? Show what did I do to my band? What did I do to these people? You know, why did I do this? You know, this was too self-indulgent. And and that was the last song, too. And I was so I was such a mess, I wouldn't have been able to go on any further anyway. So I always go to the to the merchandise stand after the shows because, well, two reasons, honestly. One, we sell 40% more merchandise when I go there and I'm signing CDs. But it's also a way for me to be able to connect, another way to connect with the audience. That's okay really strong part of our show. So, I, I'm I'm such a mess. It's hot. I'm sweating like a pig. I'm crying. I don't know if it's the sweat or the tears that are making my eyes burn. So, I've got a towel. I'm trying to dry my face. And I get over to the merchandise booth. They walk me over. I got my back turned. I get my face together. I grab a piece of gum and try to make myself feel better. And I turn around. And there's 200 people in line. And they're all patient. No one's doing the, hey, how long is this going to be? Every person stopped to tell me their story. And some of their stories involved their grandmother or their dad or their best friend or whomever. But it was all joy. None of it was in sadness. They all wanted to share. And many of them were crying. Most of them were crying. But they thanked me. And here I am on stage thinking, I just ruined your day. You came to a festival to have a beer, party with your friends, have a great time, and I got you crying about your dead grandmother. And she's like, no, you gave me an opportunity to think about them. And it had been too long. And they appreciated the fact that I put that on the stage. And we've had moments like that that have been so defining for us. We, we wrote a song called Don't Go. That's on our album, Ain't Like You. No, I'm sorry, uh, Should Have Been You. It's on the album, Should Have Been You. And this guy comes to a show, and he walks up to Ryan, our guitar player, and he says, I just want to tell you something about that song. He says, you got to play Don't Go. I'm like, sure. I'm like, anytime you request an art music, you know, if you come up and re request a uh, free bird, it's not happening. <laughs> but, <laughs> but if you come up and request Don't Go, we might be able to work that in, you know? So he says this to Ryan, he said, the reason, he said, let me explain why. He said, my wife and I, 37 years, broke up. She left me for another dude. Just decided, 
She said, I don't deal with me anymore. And rolled out. And he said, it was a two-year period. And that whole time, she's filing for divorce and everything. And he wanted her back. And he made a zillion attempts. You know, flowers, messages, showed up at her job, everything he could do to try to, and she, she wasn't having it. And the guy told me, and told Brian, that he had planned to end his life. He couldn't go on without her. After 37 years, he just couldn't do it. And he didn't want to start over again. And he said, last ditch effort, and I don't know if this was a see what you made me do thing, or, you know, I don't, I don't know where he was going with this, but he called her up, he pushed play on the CD player, and he held the phone up. He didn't say a word. Hello, nothing. He said nothing. He played Don't Go. And he had all the intention in the world that that, that was going to be his last night. And as soon as the song was over, he didn't say anything. He just hung up the phone. 45 minutes later, she was at his apartment door with a bag in her hand. And they're back together. How long ago was that? That guy told us the story about, about a year and a half ago. That's an amazing story. And we've met them several times now. And so he's telling me the story. I got tears in my eyes. I'm standing at the booth. The children around trying to figure out why I'm crying. Ryan's crying. He's crying. His wife comes up. She's got two cups in her hand. And she's going, oh, God, he told you the story, didn't he? <laughs> and we're like, yes, yes, you did. You know, I mean, and you have that kind of effect, man. You Financially, yeah, you do take a lot of hits, you know, but... That is so much more than any dollar sign, you know. It's more than, you know, the percentage you pay the agent, the, what the sound guy gets, what the light guy gets, what the proprietor, the cut that the proprietor takes, um, you know, the, your agent's fee, you know. I mean, honestly, by the time it gets down to your check, you know, there have been moments when you're lucky if you can eat a meal that night or put gas back in the bus, you know. Um, that's, that's just the nature of the business, you know, but when you compare that to a guy that comes up and said, you didn't just save my marriage, you saved my life. You can't, you can't put a price on that. Yeah, you can't. No. This has been amazing. Thank you, man. What a guy. And tell you what, you're, like I said before, your energy comes through in your shows, but it's obviously driven by a lot of passion. We we learned a little bit about you today, so. Thanks for being here. So we're going to listen to Homegrown Stand Up, right? Yeah, man. Enjoy this Homegrown Stand Up. Kelly Bell Band, the purveyors of fat booze music. So glad to meet you. Sunshine and day. 
reflection of us when you see our eyes. Hope the Lord see you with them and the creek don't rise. But we'll wade in the water, man, we gon' rise. Come together like the Beatles, yeah, we hold ties. Affiliates, supporters, fam, and amigos, right? We the people, heaven sent. Yeah, we on high. Resilience is everything. Man, we alright. Tryna put us to bed like we all tied. But you waiting for us to sleep, it's gon' be all night. When it comes to the battle, yeah, we gon' fight. Ain't waiting, it's gon' be on sight. Right, we homegrown. Homegrown. Yeah, so glad to meet you. I'm so glad to meet you. talking about that great song don't go which was so instrumental in the lives of a couple and so we're not going yet either kelly's got another story you want to share <laughs> well so when we were writing that song we were aboard the uss john c stennis and we were entertaining our united states military where was it uh, with port port we started in pearl harbor and we're doing what's called a tiger cruise and a tiger cruise is like bring your family member to work week Okay. You know, but you can't bring your wife. You can bring your grandmother or, or you know, obviously there's no um, fornication going on on the <laughs> ship. They don't have that. Okay. So uh, as a sailor or as a family member. So um, so you can bring a family member or, you know, to, to come and see what you do. So uh, they flew us to Pearl Harbor and we in 12 days we sailed to San Diego and... We were the first band, actually. They, usually they will 
you know, shoot a band onto the ship and shoot a band off to the ship, which is a real cool thing. Um, but we wanted to be different. They needed six acts. And so we told them, don't hire six acts. Hire us. We will travel with you. We will live on the boat. And we will do six completely different shows. We got 13 hours. We got plenty of material. We're not going to run out of material. Right. So we'll do these different shows. And then you don't have to keep changing sound stuff. The sound guy's going to love you for it. You know, all of that. So they bought onto the idea. They're like, we never tried anything like this before. Logistically, it's going to be a lot less trouble for us. So let's try it. So we're in the midst of doing this. We're in, we were writing the album, Should Have Been You. The song Don't Go. We were in this little tiny meeting room with our acoustic guitars and tapping on the table and working out vocal parts and arrangements. And this young sailor came in and she said she had to roll silverware for the for the officer's mess. Okay. So she's rolling the napkins and the silverware and everything and she's she's like, do you guys mind if I'm in here? Like, no, we're in your space. This is where you usually do this if, you, if we're not in your way. She's like, no, no. So we get through the song and we noticed when we're done, it's dead quiet and she was crying. And everyone's looking at me to be the one to say something to her. I'm like, man, I don't know her. I don't, you know, don't make me say something when I was... But it was so uncomfortable, the silence was so uncomfortable, I, you know, I was like, ma'am, are you okay? She went on to ask us, are you going to play that song tonight? And we said, no, because it's not ready. Like, we're, like what you're seeing is us writing a record. Since we're on the ship in the middle of the ocean, we got plenty of time. We're going we're gonna to finish writing our record here. She said, you got to play that song tonight. See, she told us a story about the sailor that she was in love with on that ship. When we landed eight days from then, he was being reassigned to another ship. And they were trying to make a decision about whether they were going to love each other strong for those eight days and then try to go on with a long-distance relationship. Now, anybody that's been in a long-distance relationship knows that that's difficult enough. But when you're in different oceans and you can't communicate because there is no web access, that's a whole different animal. And you might be there for 10 months before you know you even port. Right. So they realized, they recognized that that was gonna be difficult to keep that kind of relationship going. Um, so they still hadn't decided what they were gonna do, but they, they were in the midst of trying to make that decision. Do we break it off now and then have to see each other for the next eight days? Or do we love each other real strong? Of course, in secret, because you can't be in a relationship right. on the ship. So she said, he's coming tonight, and we're coming to your show tonight. You guys got to play that song. How do I say no to that woman? You can't. We can't. We didn't. So we didn't. So we grind. We, we, we want to grind for them. We're like, we got to play this song. So we spent the next six hours working out a three-and-a-half-minute song, you know. So we played the song. I saw her in the crowd. We are playing in the, what's called a hangar bay, which is a... Uh, Three football fields long. Were they still dressed in uniform or? Oh yeah. Okay. Oh yeah. I mean, they were on duty. Okay. They were on duty. Um, but the the family members in them, for the, everyone that wasn't working, you know, wasn't on and working on shift, um, you know, you, you're talking thousands of people. The USS John C. Stennis has six thousand people that live on it. So, um, here we are playing to them, and there, there she is. And again, after every show, I do some kind of meet and greet. So. I'm now meeting and there's just, you know, a long line of people. She comes up, he comes up. I feel like I already know him. I know his whole story. 
you know, and I, and I meet with them. And then a, another lady comes up behind them, and she's middle-aged, and she says, I like that song you played, the one, um, Don't Go, I think it was called. I said, yeah, yeah. She said, you got to play that again tomorrow night. And I tried to explain to her, I was like, man, well, we're doing something different here. We're doing we're do six different shows over this time, but we, we had decided not to repeat any songs and have everything be different. She said, see, I'm the wife of an XO, of an executive officer. And on my way to the station, on the way to, the, to Pearl Harbor where we left, on the way to the base, she was basically jumping a ride with the Stennis to meet her husband of 37, 38 years, whatever it was, uh, in California. And they were going to go to France. He was due to retire. And they were going to start their life together as a couple after 37 years in the service. Now she gets her husband back. She found out on the ride to the base that he was being reassigned. Two. He was not going he was not to retire. He was told he was not retiring because they needed him for another mission. So he was going to be in for at least another 10 to 13 months. So imagine that. You got your bags packed. You think you're going to France. This is going to be great. And she is riding to catch a ride that's going to take her 12 days to get to her old man. And all she's going to see is water and be on this floating auto body shop because that's what it's like, you know. Uh, all they do is fix halos and planes and, you know, and then you find out that your old man is everything you've been doing for 37 years because your country needs him. You got to do it for at least another year. So I'm blown away and she starts to cry. She says, so I need you to play that song again tomorrow night. I said, ma'am, I understand. She said, let me explain to you again. I am the wife of an executive officer and you are in the middle of the ocean. I said, I think I understand now. We will be playing that song again tomorrow night. Yes, ma'am. So we played it. You know, we played it the next night and she was sitting down in a crowd and I had a cordless mic and she was crying. And it was breaking my heart, man. So I walked off the stage and I grabbed a chair and I brought it over to her. And all these people, they have no idea what's going on. Just me and her and the band because the band, I told them the story. And I sat and I held her hand right in front of her and I just sang the song with her. And she came up, so again, after the show, long line, shaking hands, which is a big part of what we do for the military. It's not just about doing songs. So she comes up, she gives me a big hug. She leaves. An older woman, older than her, comes up and she says, I just want you to know that it was really beautiful what you did for her. But I got, a, I got my own story. My son is uh, uh, a sailor on the ship. He's 19 years old. His whole life I've been trying to get him to dance with me. His whole life. Ever since he was a little boy, he never, ever would do it. For some reason, when y'all played that song that that woman wanted to hear, he stood up, reached down, stuck his hand out, and pulled me up. Now, a little backstory: you can't dance in uniform. You ain't supposed to be dancing in the hangar bay. He's going to get in trouble for that. This, he's he's going to spend a little time in the brig, or he's going to get some extra duties mm -hmm. that because he did this. But all he saw was, I'm going to dance with my mom right now for the first time ever. So he stands her up, and they dance together. She's telling me the story now. She's crying. Now I'm crying. Third day in a row. I'm like, this is ridiculous. Like, this, this trip is way too much for me, man. And we're having this conversation. 
She walks off. She asked, of course, will you play the song again? And I'm like, oh, my God. Like, every, every night we're going to have to play this song over and over again, which I'm cool with. But we had made this commitment and rehearsed and practiced and brought all of us to, so we weren't going to do it. And here we are playing this one song at least every night. It's a two-hour show, so it's not that big a deal. But um, So she walks off. And about ten minutes later, in the line, her son comes up. And he says, you know what? You know, when y'all played that song, Don't Go, and I was like, oh, man, I know where this is going. Somebody's going to want us to play this again. He says, I danced with my mom. I said, was your mom? And I said her name. He was like, yeah. I was like, I met her about, like, ten minutes ago. He said, yeah, man, I never realized what a big deal me dancing with her. She always tried to get me to do that, and I never, you know, I never want to do it. I'm not a dancer. But he's like, man, she popped for that. He said, she thinks I'm on, on watch tomorrow but I got somebody to cover my shift for me. I'm gonna surprise her here tomorrow night at your show, and I know she's coming. Would you guys mind playing that song again? I can't say no! This is the fifth night. This is! <laughs> I can't say no, we have to play that song again. So I told him, I said, we'll do better than that. I said, when I said, uh, you keep yourself hidden, since you're playing on, I'll give you a little cue. Just make sure you make yourself known to me so I can see where you're gonna be and where you're gonna be. Stay there. Don't move around so that I'll, I'll know how to bring you into the show. So come time and I find her in the crowd. I tell her, I said, is it okay if I tell the story you told me? So I tell the story over the microphone. I said, what you don't know is your son is not on watch tonight. Turn around. And she turns around. He pops up like sailor in the box. Boop. You know. She come, he comes over, grabs her hand, and I have him walk her up onto the stage, and they stand front and center. We all take three steps backwards. They put the spotlight on them. And we start doing, and I'm getting, sorry, I'm getting misty now, because mm, it was one of the most amazing things in my life. And all of a sudden, you see these different families, and there's a daughter that stands up, and she's dancing with her dad. And a grandfather was dancing with his granddaughter. And it was one family down front that had four members in the, in the military, four all Navy, and they were all there. And they all stood up and put their arms around and danced together. It was the most amazing thing ever, ever. And, and I got to be a part of that, and it changed my life. That raw emotion and... You can your see words, it in my face, man. I'm like, I tear up just thinking about your it. Your words and your music just tapped into people, and that's that's got to be a gift in and of itself. It, I, I am so, so very blessed to, to have been able to do this for so long with absolutely no end in sight, and now with this crazy push of what's going on with the recent success that the band has had. Um, you had asked me before about what do I think or what am I hoping for the band and what am I hoping for this record? I'm hoping that we can help even more people than we have. It would be awesome to have a platinum record, but it would be way more awesome to hear more stories like uh, there's a guy who came and told me that Something that I said to him changed his life. I came out in Frederick, Maryland, stepped out in the alley because there was no dressing room, and I just needed to get away from the crowd because it was crazy in there and hot. And 
And before the second set started, I just needed to breathe. And he was sitting in the alley, and he was in a bad way. And I just rapped to him. I mean, he didn't, nobody knew we were out there. And uh, come to find out, he was strung out in heroin. Him and his old lady were strung out in heroin. And we had a conversation. Now, I don't even remember this conversation. I'm going to be honest. Um, I met this guy again years later in Georgia. We were on tour. And he came to the show, and he told me this story. And he said it was something about the way that I talked to him that night, the fact that I showed him some kindness when he was in a place where he didn't deserve it. And it changed his life. And he went home and told his wife, I need to get clean. And she was not willing to do it. And he said, he said don't get me wrong. I'm not here to say that, I'm, you know, that I was suddenly a different person. He's like, I used you know, probably another month or two after that. But I had slowed down what I was doing and I started to look more and more and those words kept coming back to me. And he ended up having to get divorced because she wouldn't get clean. He ended up relocating, ended up in Georgia, married again, kids, doing well, had been clean for years. And it was based on a conversation that we had. And had it not been for fat blues music, I would have never been there in the first place. The conversation we had, he knew the band, but the conversation we had had nothing to do with the band. But had I not been on a set break, that would not have happened and that guy may have been dead. I don't want to be so arrogant to think that I caused his turnaround or anything like that, but just for someone to come back and say to you, you are part of my journey and look at who I am now. to know that you had that kind of effect on anybody. And I have zillions of stories like that. Probably all stems back to the days you were with your dad when you were cutting lawns for people in D.C., making no money even though you had none. Yeah, definitely. Those are the roots and the foundation upon which you've done all these other great things. So congratulations to you and congratulations to the audience because they get a chance to see you uh, at the end of this month, right? Yeah, that's right, man. Live on WTMD. Folks can come see us. Um, it is uh, April 26th, Friday, April 26th. Okay. Uh, it'll be broadcasted live on WTMD. Uh, and then... Uh, so is it in their studios or something? It's actually okay. in the studio. They have a they have a, a on-stage studio that holds a few hundred people. Oh, nice. And they, they're going to pull out all the seats and everything so we can get more people in there. Um... And the first hour of the show is going to be broadcast live over the air. And then when they go back to normal programming, and that's going to be kind of a greatest hits. And the last song is probably going to be Long Train, which is the first song on the record. But then after that, we do a meet and greet so we can spend time with everybody. But then we come back to stage, and we'll probably play another couple of hours after that. And we're including playing the whole new record in its entirety. And then a whole bunch of other stuff and whatever, you know, whatever we feel like doing at that and don't point. go. And probably don't go. <laughs> probably don't go. It's been an absolute pleasure, pleasure, brother. Thank you again, so, my friend. Thank you. There you have it. This is the final, or this is our last edition of Music Fanimal until the new season begins, coming April fifteenth.